Have you ever, uh, maybe the beginning of a semester or new marking period for you guys in the younger ages and grades, you ever gone to the wrong classroom? Maybe at work you wound up in the wrong conference room or maybe you got on the wrong bus? Uh, yeah, I heard that from several people. Uh, maybe you weren't sure or something you, it was new to you and, and you're trying to confirm things, but you got to go. And so you get on the bus or in that room or whatever, and then you realize as stuff starts happening, oh, no, I am in the wrong place. Where am I going to wind up? What's going to happen here? How am I going to get out of here without looking like really, I'm really foolish? Oh, this isn't right. Well, today we're looking at Mark chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17, and Jesus calls a tax collector, and we'll talk more about what that job was back in the day, but I, I, I'm pretty certain this tax collector felt like he was in the wrong place. Uh, as a tax collector, he would have been looked down on as he piled up money. People would hate him, despise him. Uh, but then even as he comes to follow Jesus and turns his life around, he still has criticism. And it sounds from some, sounds to some uh, as you listen to them that he's still in the wrong place. And in fact, Jesus is accused of being in the wrong place. And every one of us, uh, wherever we are in our lives, can experience that sense of I'm in the wrong place. And uh, as we look at this text together, I want you to see that really there is hope of finding the right place and being in a, in a place of connection where you can withstand uh, both the external pressures and criticisms and even the internal voice to find some peace and some hope and some contentment. Now look with me at this passage for just those things as we read together Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible life-giving word. Read with me, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and following. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Oh Lord, would you meet us here today? 
Open our eyes, our ears, our, our hearts to your word. May it be uh, more than ink on paper and pixels on our screens, sound waves hitting our eardrums. Lord, may it truly transform us from the inside out that we would know you and find peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. According to a, a recent study, if you feel like you're in the wrong place, you are certainly not alone. Six out of ten people surveyed feel like they don't belong in their workplace. Sixty percent of people feel like they're, they're not in the right place at work. Some three out of four people feel like they don't belong in their city or town. Seventy-five percent of people feel like they're in the wrong city or town Seventy percent, seven out of ten people feel like they they lack a sense of belonging in their country, that their own nation doesn't quite feel like the place that they ought to be. And if you think about those statistics and just the general idea of feeling like you're in the wrong place or that you don't belong, uh, that you're not connected, really, those things are all very much related to our social relationships, to our, our network and our connections with other people. And that situation is where Levi, the tax collector, was. uh, Before Jesus and after Jesus, before he followed Jesus and after he's following Jesus, he seems to be cut off and disconnected. And there are people that actively are working on that. You know, why are you hanging out with them? You shouldn't hang out with those people. And whether or not you verbally hear that or maybe you see it on social media, wherever... Yeah, all of us experience that at one point or another. Of I, I'm, I think I might be in the wrong place. I'm not sure I belong here. This passage speaks to that situation and offers you a place to connect. It offers you a person to connect with. And, it, and, and I would encourage you as you look at this passage... That the way to find true connection, lasting connection, a a, a real community, a sense of belonging, is to start with Jesus. Because that's what He wants for you. And to look at His actions and, and, and focus on Him. And first of all, to see that Jesus sees you. That's our first point today. That Jesus sees you. Look at verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. The picture is crowds following Jesus, and Jesus is again walking along the seashore, most likely the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds are large, and they have been gathering now, as we've read through Mark chapter 1 and now into Mark chapter 2, bigger and bigger. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is so concerned about the crowds that he might get crushed physically by them that he says, hey, I want to, I want to be in a boat on the sea a little bit so that I can teach and not have everyone pressing in on me. And in the midst of that, he's, it says again by the seashore. And I think Mark uses that little word to call to mind as you're reading through Mark's gospel now. If you were just in chapter 1, it's so fast, and we've taken so long to preach through it because Mark goes so fast, that you would remember at this point as you're reading, he's again by the seashore. When was he in the seashore? Oh, I know, when he called those fishermen back in Mark chapter 1. 
to follow him. And, and you would begin to read, if you were in the first century reading this for the first time, these words in verse 14, knowing he's by the seashore, and again, knowing what happened with the calling of the fishermen, you would read, he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And you would probably begin to think, wait, what? No, no, no. He's, he's not going to call a tax collector to follow him, is he? No. No. You know, these are thoughts that would probably enter your mind just right away as you read that. That he sees Levi sitting in the tax booth. And a little side note, this is most likely Matthew, the same Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew, here called Levi, and this passage occurs in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's uh, some debate about it because he's called the son of Alphaeus, and when you look at the list of apostles, that there's a James who's called the son of Alphaeus, but Matthew it's not mentioned. And you know, there's a lot you could look at, and, and it's not absolutely certain, but if you, if you look at all the data, I would say this is... Matthew, uh, that he wanted probably a clean break from his life as a tax collector and said, hey, call me by my middle name, Levi, or by my grandfather's name, or I mean, call me Matthew, something like that, where he wanted a clean break and they started calling him Matthew and no longer Levi. If you disagree with that, that's fine, but that's my theory and it fits with the data in the scripture. And so Jesus sees this Levi or Matthew at his tax booth. He, he doesn't see fishermen and start to call them. He sees this tax collector. And tax collectors in those days were despised by the people for the most part. Not only because they did that awful task of collecting your taxes, right? Of taking your hard-earned money to support the government that's far away. And we can understand that, but that's, that's a legitimate job. You know, that's, that's a legitimate job. However how much we don't like having our money taken away, Scripture's clear that that is something that happens, that we should pay taxes. Romans 13, Matthew 22 both talk about that. But more than that, in those days, the tax collectors had a hard time not being corrupt. It was a commissioned job, actually, where you, you would say, I'll get taxes from this area to the government, and here's the quote I'll give you. I'll, I'll bring in this much revenue for you. And they would say, okay, yeah, whoever's got the best bid, we'll take that person, and you could be our tax collector for that area. And then that was about it, right? You were the tax collector, and you could pull in whatever, and you had the power of the government behind you, and you could bring in more. But you would have to bring in more to make some profit. And it was very hard not to bring in a lot more and not to use that power to pad your own pockets. Uh, there's corruption in that. John the Baptist highlighted that in uh, his preaching in Luke chapter 3. Uh, Zacchaeus admitted as much in Luke chapter 19 that he had taken more than he should have. But even on top of that, so it's not just a bad job, it's not just this corruption, there is a sense of betrayal in those days, to be a tax collector, a Jewish person working for the government, which is at this point in history an oppressive government, ruling over the people, occupying their land, and raising money. You're, you're, you're supporting the enemies, so to speak, in those days. And on top of that, 
It's not just any enemy. It's, it's just unclean people, non-Jewish people. The, the, the businesses you would have to be engaged in would make you ritually unclean. All of those things come together that, that Jesus himself uses tax collectors as sort of a, a, a picture and type, even as we read a little bit ago in Luke chapter 18, that the, the humble tax collector is unusual. And that's what we see here. This tax collector sitting by the sea at his tax booth. And Jesus sees him. Now, my picture of, of that is probably people not looking at the tax collector, right? You want to pass by and maybe you can skate by and not have to pay taxes, you know? Uh, he'd be like, hey, 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 you come over here. And you're like, ah, you know, like trying not to get called on in class or something. Or otherwise, you know, maybe you paid your taxes and what are you going to look like then? You know, even if you've paid and you're settled, well, you know, you're probably going to give him a dirty look. Probably glare at him. If you see him at all, it's not a, a smile. It's not a really seeing him the way Jesus, I'm sure, looked at him with compassion, with love, with concern. And that's such a powerful thing to be seen, to be noticed. I was driving uh, through my neighborhood just this last week, and uh, it, was, it was in the morning, and uh, you know, in, in Drexel Hill, and there's a stop sign every block, right? And so I'm, I'm driving along, and I noticed that there's several parents and kids, I assume parents and kids, at multiple blocks. I'm thinking, oh, it must be a bus route, you know, they're coming along. And I could see up ahead, coming up to the next stop sign, there's a kid, maybe six, seven, eight, and he's just sitting there, he's holding his mom's hand, and she's on her phone. So he's like down here, she's like this, but he's down here going. And I could see him and I'm like, that kid's having a good day. And, and mom's oblivious, you know, on her phone. And so I pull up to the stop sign and I happen to make eye contact with him and he looks over and he goes. And I'm like, I'm smiling now. I'm like, hey, how you doing? I go through, thankfully I didn't crash into anybody or anything. I, you know, I've stopped the stops and everything. But just that, you know, just that simple connection, right? That seeing someone, you know, that's so, so powerful. You know, just even a smile. And okay, don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, be careful walking around the streets in some places you don't want to make eye contact, okay? And... Probably in the church, that's not one of those places where you don't want to make eye contact, right? Let's just smile. You know, in, in your house, with other people, at your workplace, in your school, within reason, right? Uh, just a, a smile, just acknowledge people's existence. Uh, and you can go more than that, right? Of ask how they're doing, those kind of things. That, that that is the sense I get of Jesus that, you know, just seeing somebody humanizes them. And the tax collector, I'm sure, feels less than human. It's probably guilty about being corrupt and all those kind of things, just cut off and isolated. And, 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 and there are things we can do to, to just remember people's names, uh, to, to take some interest in them, uh, to, uh, birthdays or you know, it, it, talking you know, with your children to put down the phone, those kind of things of engaging and seeing someone. It's so, so powerful. And that's, that's the picture of Jesus here, that he, that he sees you. The Scriptures make that super clear in, in, in numerous places. 
One of the Psalms says that the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, observes all their deeds. You know, he sees you. Hebrews says, you know, that we're, we're, we're naked and laid bare before him. He sees us. He sees all that we are, even the bad stuff. And he still looks at us, acknowledges us, affirms our humanity. But that's not all he does. Jesus not only sees you, like he sees the tax collector here, but he summons you. He calls you. Look at verse 14 at the end. He said to him, to to Levi, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Jesus summons you to, to a new life. Just as he did with the fishermen out on their boats and mending their nets, Jesus calls them and they drop what they're doing and they follow him. Same thing with Levi here. He, he stops, leaves his tax collector booth and follows Jesus into a new life, into a new way of relating, into a new community. In fact, if you look at verse 15, it happened, we read, that he was reclining at the table in, the house, in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. Luke chapter 5 Verse 29 says that they, they, he made a, Levi made a great feast in his house. That there were lots of people there. It was a special occasion. They're, they're reclining at table and that may or may not be uh, a more formal, a more uh, fancy feast in that language alone. But Luke makes it clear that it was a bigger feast. They're reclining in those days, in, especially in more formal settings, they would they would actually you know, lean with their feet back behind them, laying down on their elbow, and be eating propped up like this. That was a, a feast. You would be together a lot closer than most of us Americans would want to be, you know, just the, all in together, sharing food together. And I think, in part, this is Levi getting this this twin reality of, you know, I've only had tax collectors who would hang out with me, and even them, I don't trust them. They're all corrupt, just like I was corrupt. Um, but now, now I have a new community. And in fact, Jesus, when he summons you, is summoning you, not just to a relationship with him, that's true, but also into a new community. Jesus is there with his disciples. And so in a sense, Jesus is summoning you and saying, spend time with me and with my people. It explicitly in the text here mentions Jesus and his disciples in verse 15. This is the first mention of disciples in Mark's gospel. A disciple uh, comes from a word for learner in the original Greek there, or student, pupil, someone who uh, hears verbal instruction from a master or teacher, not unlike an apprentice in a skilled trade where they would spend time with someone, right? Not just in a classroom, but actually doing the job. Uh, if you were a, a disciple of someone, a follower of someone in those days, you're, you're spending time with them. You're like leaving home, camping with them, essentially, eating with them, living with them, doing all the things of life together. And that's what they're doing including hanging out with whoever God brings into their path and whoever comes into the community. 
They're reclining together, spending time with Jesus and his followers. Eating together. Have you ever noticed just how often scriptures talk about Jesus eating with people and then just people eating with other people? That, That there is something almost sacred about sharing a meal together. And that's part of the objection of the, of the self-righteous Pharisees saying, how could you eat with those people? How could you have that kind of intimacy and fellowship and connection with those people? But that is what God calls us to. That we would spend time with Jesus and with His people. Eating together, talking to Jesus, Listening to Jesus. Now, how would we do that today? Well, we could eat together and we could talk to Jesus in prayer and we could listen to Jesus studying his word together and we could live life together in a community. And, you know, we do that a little bit here on Sunday mornings, but that's really, you know, a challenge to have any level of intimacy and connection. And it's one of the reasons this year we're going to emphasize smaller groups. 242 communities. Acts 242 is the idea there where you're coming together with people that you could maybe eat together with, that you could talk to Jesus together, praying together, that you could listen to Jesus studying his word together, that you might do those things together as part of the community because Jesus summons you not just to a relationship with Him, but to a relationship with Him in community. That's why we call it communion when we take the Lord's Supper together. It is our common union. We're celebrating our connection, not just with Jesus, but with each other. It's one of the reasons that's not the best thing to be doing on your own or at home. It's actually one of our uh, doctrinal positions that we can't do that independently and separately, that it should be part of a worship service. That we're together in a community following Jesus. And that means some sacrifice, right? That means some awkwardness. You know, maybe you're an introvert. You don't don't feel real comfortable with other people. So am I. Suck it up. (laughs) And you know what you'll find? It's worth it. If you stick it out long enough to experience relationship, it's so worth it. And in fact... If you look at the research, being isolated and alone has negative health effects. Something like, uh, if, if you're experiencing isolation, it's as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. It's linked to, to bad heart health. It's... it's it, Isolation and a lack of connection with other people is is worse than being obese. It's more harmful than heart disease. it's, It's unbelievable what human connection means. And Jesus offers that. He says, follow me and I'll give you a community. I'll bring, for, for you who have never had a child, I will bring children into your life. For you who have never had a parent, I'll bring parents into your life. For you who have never had a friend, Jesus said, I'll bring friends into your life. I'll give you a community if you will follow me, Jesus says. That you would come into this new life and you would leave behind the old life. That you would sacrifice. The the fishermen left their nets and followed him. Uh, Levi leaves his tax booth and follows him. Jesus says, 
later on that if you want to come after me, you must deny himself and take up your cross and follow me, Mark 8, 34. Jesus says in Mark 10, 21, one thing you lack, go sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. That he calls us to leave behind a lot. That we would gain a community. And it's interesting that when he calls us to leave things behind, he then calls us to be the community. You are at the same time leaving something behind to join a community, and you are a gift to the community. And so if you, if you withhold yourself from the community, you are making us all poorer. And if you just are present and show up and extend yourself a little, you're blessing the community, that we become stronger for that together. And it's one of the beautiful things that we, we get to see here in Crossroads looking around, right? That, that there is an antidote to loneliness and isolation for so many by just showing up in this building and seeing. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard someone say, I'm here because I was looking for a church and I couldn't find one where we really felt like we belonged. And I showed up and I saw people like me. And that's come from many different types of people. It's a beautiful gift that we have to just be us. You know, that, that people can show up and see people who look like them. And that means, though, that we have to leave behind some things, right? Jesus called the fishermen were fishing on this lake who had paid taxes most likely to Levi for years probably, right? Probably didn't have the best opinion of Levi. Probably were kind of irritated with him. And they come to follow Jesus. And then Jesus goes and calls Levi to follow. And now they're together. And so they have to leave behind those old animosities. Not denying who they are and not giving up their heritage and ignoring the past or anything like that. But to prioritize Jesus over their own interests and preferences over their own background over their own ethnicities over everything else that it's Jesus who summons you you know come for Jesus and stay because he gives you a community that's the order that we would prioritize Jesus in this new life together because he's the one who summons you to come Take up your cross and follow him. But he, he not only sees you, the real you, he not only summons you, whoever you are and whatever you've been through, but listen, he's the one alone who saves you. Jesus alone saves you. The world condemns. Look at verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he, Jesus, was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating, drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You know, the world judges your associations, who you hang out with, judges your actions, your interests, your background, your qualifications, what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do. Uh, we can get into virtue signaling or all these kind of things, right? All this stuff happens. The world does that. And sadly, religious people do it too. And that's not what Jesus does. 
Jesus will call anyone. It's another beautiful thing that we have, right? That we have people who, who not only look all kinds of different, but have different backgrounds, different educational levels, wear different kinds of clothing, come from different places, different theological backgrounds, different church backgrounds, different countries of origin, different languages, all these things that, that come together. We need to be very careful of how we view what other people do. And that means we have to be very careful about how we define what makes a Christian or not. And if you begin to add things beyond the centrality of Jesus and faith in Him, beyond that core of looking to Him as the one who alone saves, when you start to add other things, you start to become heretical and depart from Jesus and the core. I'm not saying secondary things aren't important. They're just not as important. And the third level things, you know, that's, that's some dialogue, right? So the core has to be the core. And the entry point in a world that condemns, here's the hard part, right? The world that condemns, that judges, that looks at your associations and, and who you're connected with and what you listen to and how you vote and the signs in your yard and all those kind of things, right? The world looks at those things and judges, Jesus looks at you and cures. The world condemns. Jesus cures. And that means that whatever you have going on in your life and whatever they have going on in their lives, we're all sick. We all need a doctor. It's like we're all out in the, in the, in the slums with some disease just beating each other up and going, you're sicker than I am. Okay. Here comes Jesus and says, I have the cure. I've come to where you are. Jesus comes in the midst of the disease and the spiritual sickness and ailments and says in verse 17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you think you have it all together, then Jesus has nothing for you. And you're going to be isolated and alone. But if you believe that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of God's desire for you in word or deed, in thoughts and actions, that's the entry requirement. You know, the world is upside down and it will, it will blame you and condemn you for your sins and faults, right? And Jesus says, that's the entry point into a relationship with me. That's why you feel isolated. It's because you're hiding the reality. And maybe you put on some exterior actions that, that make it look you're better than you are, but inside you know you're not. And you're always going to be conflicted like that. It's not until you find the place where you can share your honest self. This is one of the beautiful things about a healthy marriage where you can be yourselves and have that sort of intimacy, be naked and unashamed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to be the bride of Christ, that we would be naked and unashamed before him because we already are. That's what Hebrews says, that we are naked and exposed before him. He sees you and still he summons you to be a part of his community. And he saves you if you will admit, that's exactly what I need. I, I am embarrassed and ashamed that I have sinned and fallen short. I am sick and need curing. 
And we call that in theological language repentance. To say, this is the way I have been, Lord. I don't want it anymore. I'm turning from it. And then I'm turning to you in faith, believing your promises that all that you say is true. Despite maybe how religious people have treated me over the years, despite how uh, the world portrays evangelicals or Bible believers or Christians or whatever, despite all of that stuff, Jesus, I need you, Jesus. Whatever the church is like, I need you, Jesus. And what Jesus says is, yeah, and you know what else you get? You get the church. You get my people. Because you can't have Jesus without a community. That's the way he's designed it. And he gives you a community that's not perfect. As some have said, right? It's a hospital for sinners. We're all in, not, I don't think we're in recovery because we're not done yet, right? We haven't been through the surgery. You know, we're all in the sick ward, you know, we all should have like masks and like IVs and whatever the spiritual equivalent of all those things is, right? Because we're all messed up. And Jesus is the only one who can cure us. He sees you. He summons you. He, he saves you. And that, that's the beginning of real connection. If you will step out in faith, believing those things, that, that you will find the realest of relationships, starting with Jesus and in the community, that you'll find a culture and a place of belonging if we do it well. And I think we can do it well. And I think it's, it's why, again, I want to beat this drum all year, that we need to have smaller groups of community we need to have connection. And I'll tell you, we did an experiment last summer, and, and this was totally my idea. And it was totally wrong in hindsight. We had three special events focused on outreach instead of regular crossroads in the summer, community at people's houses, thinking, oh, we need to reach out in the community and everything. It's like, yes, we do. And if we don't have a strong community internally, which is our own connections with each other, then, then we have nothing to offer. And I mean that sincerely. That if we don't have love for one another and a connection with each other, we have nothing to offer. Jesus said it this way, the world will know you're my disciples by your outreach programs, by the preaching, the world will know you're my disciples by your wonderful worship services, by the gifting of your musicians, by the diversity of your congregation. The world will know you're my disciples by, by your love for one another. And that's so easy to say, I'll tell you. I will admit, that's much easier for me to say right now, up here in front of you all, not face-to-face, one-on-one. It's hard. It's hard to love one another. It almost makes you feel like, well, maybe I'm sick and I have a brokenness in my relational ability. Yeah, how about that? And who brings the cure? Jesus. And it's only when we believe that he sees us in the midst of that, and, and when he's summoning us to a community, not just an individual relationship, but togetherness, that, that then we are saved. That's the process. That's, that all comes together, and we can kind of divide it up or whatever to look at it. But really, that all goes together. That it is only as you're saved that, that, 
You're going to recognize Jesus sees you, and you're going to hear that call. It all comes together, but it all has to be together. And in that place, man, we will experience community, belonging, love, that will not only impact each of us and our, our physical health, our spiritual health, but it will transform the world around us because they will know that we are his disciples. They will know Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is so, so easy to say and even to affirm these truths in our, in our minds, Lord, to intellectually understand and maybe even do some of the things, Lord, and I feel the disconnect in my heart. We have trouble giving up our time, our, our energy, our resources of making the, the drive or, or stepping up to lead. Lord, work in our hearts. Revive us, Jesus. Give us a, a, a renewed commitment to you and your people that flows, Lord, into an overwhelming abundance of, of smaller groups that we can connect in, of, of leaders who care for their small groups, of, of members who take it seriously and join with one another, who, who share life together, Lord, who, who feel that summons to eat together, to, to talk to you, to listen to you together. Oh, Lord, bring that about in the only way that it will ever happen, which is by the power of your Spirit in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.